0: Good morning, church family. Good morning. How's everyone feeling today? Good. 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 Great, good, yeah. All right. It's been a roller coaster of a month, hasn't it? Uh, whether we're talking about the virus or whether we're talking about the weather last week. A couple of days of snow, one really nice day of sun. I hear this week, Wednesday, is supposed to get into the 80s. Spr- <laughs> Who said boo? Who said boo? Not a fan of the heat? Okay, all right. You're going to be ridden out of here on a rail, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Not the first time. Well, thank you for being here. Welcome to our online church family and our Bainbridge and Cincy campuses. We're glad everyone can join us today. We are in a series called The Parables, uh, stories that messed up religious people. And parables were just the name of the types of stories that Jesus told. He would tell stories that were more than just stories. They were trying to convey a heavenly principle through an earthly example. Now, the tricky part with Jesus' stories is that he was... Making truth, heavenly truth, accessible to people that had always been on the outskirts, people that had never really understood religion, parables brought the stories to them. They understood it, they got it, the light bulb clicked, wow. But the people that were religious, were moral, were good, were often the ones on the outside, like, we don't get it. What's your story mean? Even Jesus' own inner circle, his followers, Jesus would often have to explain it to them outside of the gatherings, and and they'd say, what does this story mean? And Jesus said, well, I'm trying to hide truth from the hard and trying to make it accessible to the simple or the humble or the broken. Now, what's interesting is later on in Jesus' life, his parables take a little bit of a different tone. They become even more clear, more compelling, and actually a little bit harsh. And today we're going to look at three of his final parables, his final stories, and you're going to see that all three... Tell one story, have one meaning, and yet the third of those three stories has a twist in it that isn't readily understandable, but is pretty explosive when you understand it. So if you would turn to your copy of Scripture, to Matthew 21, that's where we're going to find our parables or our stories this morning. Matthew 21. I'd like to give you a little context to these parables. Let me tell you kind of when they happen and and what's happening before Jesus tells these stories. This is the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. So if you just kind of think about the week leading up to Easter, what is it that we celebrate that Sunday before Easter Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus had this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the crowds gathered and they hailed him as their new king. And everyone was laying palm branches down and essentially people were excited, convinced, that this is coronation week. Jesus, their Messiah, their rescuer, is finally here. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to lead them into victory. He's He's going to be the king that they've always wanted. And so they're all anticipating coronation. And then Monday comes... If you watched Good Friday, you'll know that we talked about what happened during the week that changed things. Monday comes, Jesus gets up early after his triumphal entry, the royal welcome. He gets up early, he's walking into the city of Jerusalem. He sees a figless fig tree and he curses the thing. And I can imagine his disciples thinking, well, he got up on the wrong side of bed. Then he walks straight into temple, the center for worship, and he causes mayhem by flipping over tables, by driving out the merchants who are exchanging money for the sacrificial animals and birds, and he causes just utter chaos in the temple. And people are like, what is going on with him today? Then some people travel long distance and they want to come meet with Jesus, and Jesus refuses to meet with them. He begins telling these weird stories about death, and then he goes off to be alone, you're like, Monday, Jesus is having a rough day. Everyone around him is anticipating coronation, and he is clearly anticipating crucifixion. And there's a different expectation from Jesus in the crowd. Well, then Tuesday comes, and Tuesday things get even more interesting. Jesus decides, well, I have an idea. I'm going to go walking into the temple, the place that I caused mayhem at yesterday. I'll just go, I'll just go there and teach today. So he does. He goes into the temple. Well, how do you think the gatekeepers of the temple are going to feel about him coming back? Well, obviously, there's a lot of tension in the room, in the, in the temple, when Jesus walks in. Like, here's the guy who just messed everything up yesterday. Here's the guy that caused utter chaos. And so there's this, there's this conflict, this tension that rises in the temple when Jesus walks in. I imagine his disciples are like, Jesus, could we go do like another sermon on the mount today? Can we like get out of here? And Jesus just steps right into the tension. And the, the, religious leaders and all the moral good people who are involved in temple worship come to Jesus and they're like, listen, by what authority are you doing these things? You just caused a mess yesterday. Who's giving you authority to do these things? And Jesus realizes it's a trap question and so he gives them a trap question, a catch-22, that they're like, well, we can't answer that. And Jesus is like, fine, I'm not going to answer your question either. And so there's this impasse, there's this huge impasse there. Jesus standing there all the religious leaders, and Jesus is like, "But I have a story for you." And he tells a story. And here's the first story he told, verse 28 of chapter 21. And and by the way, if you go back to verse 27, you see the the tension rising. Jesus said, Neither am I going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. I'm not going to answer you. You won't answer me. So here's my story. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, the one who said, I won't go, and then he did go. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors, though they hated the traitor tax collectors, and the prostitutes, they couldn't stand these immoral blights on their society, the prostitutes, are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John, that's Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Do you see where Jesus is going with this first story? He's exposing to them, they think they're the good guys. They think they're the obedient son, and Jesus is like, You sound like the obedient son. You sound like you're gonna do everything I want you to, but you turn around and you don't do it. And Jesus exposes their goodness as nothing more than a facade. It's exterior, it's external. On the outside, they they look the part, but on the inside they're rebellious, they're arrogant. And Jesus fully exposed that. In fact, one of the terms he called, called them on a day when he was feeling really good, he called them whitewashed tombs. And that wasn't a compliment. He was telling them, look, on the outside, you look good. You're playing the part well, but on the inside, you're filled with death. Your religion, your goodness, it's all a facade. It's not genuine. Now, if you can't feel the tension that would have been felt in the temple that day, let me let me give you an example of what this could have been like imagine right now i'm here teaching and the, do- the back door's open with a- just a bang and you're like who's walking in and down the aisle walks this guy you're not familiar with he comes up and he grabs the mic and he says you all here you bereans i've heard about you you all look good you all sound good but you're all a bunch of fakes gives me back the mic and walks out how do we end the morning? Uh, let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, <laughs> where, where do you go from there? right? And so the tension has just risen to the t- temple. Jesus drops this story, really throwing the good people under the bus, and he doesn't quit while he's behind. He goes for story number two. Verse 33, listen to another parable. I'm sure they're thinking, oh boy, here we go. I'm sure his poor disciples were like, Jesus, could we stop now? Could we get out of here? Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, uh, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Well, of course, he's a landlord. He expects payment. The tenants, though... They didn't act how they should have. They seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. So the crowd's just feeding right into the story. And he will rent the vineyard to another to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Now Jesus whips out a prophecy. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone, the stone the builders rejected, that's become the cornerstone. This is a little deep, but hang with me for a minute. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Okay, I was tracking with Jesus up until the stone thing. What in the world is he talking about? Now, if you go back to the prophecy that he quotes, who is the stone that the builders rejected that's become the cornerstone? That's Jesus, the Messiah. So he's saying that he's going to be rejected by his people, and yet rather than push him away, they're going to embed him down to become the cornerstone, something great's going to be built on him. It's a really cool prophecy. And Jesus then kind of takes it a step further, and he says, hey, anyone who falls on the stone is going to be broken. In other words, if you ignore Jesus, if you're apathetic towards Jesus, he's going to break you. But if you fight against him, he's going to fall and crush you. So whichever side you're on, the, the, the continuum of response to Jesus, right? If you are angry at Jesus or fighting against Jesus, he's going to just one day crush you. If you're apathetic about Jesus, don't care about Jesus, ignore Jesus, you're going to trip over him and get crushed. Now, as Jesus talks about this... The, the crowd, the people, that's the Messiah they wanted. They wanted a warrior. They wanted someone who wouldn't stand for rejection, who wouldn't stand for anything but a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish king, a Jewish leader. So there's a part of this that they really like, but the problem is this. The problem is that they're all expecting Jesus to be harsh and to crush who? Rome. Rome. The Romans. And as Jesus is talking, people are like, I feel like I'm in Jesus' crosshairs. The, the religious people are looking down and they see a laser on their chest. They're like, Whoa! What are you doing? Amen at us! You're the Jewish Messiah. You're the Jewish deliverer. You're the Jewish rescuer. You're supposed to talk about this with the Romans as the bad guys. How did we get in the crosshairs? How did we become the bad guys? So imagine Jesus walks in here today, grabs the mic, says this stuff that slams all of you, and then he turns and looks at me and he says, yeah, and you and the whole pastor team, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You look good. You might even smell good. Well, maybe. But you're not good. You're just leading everybody astray. You imagine how you would feel, how I would feel, how we would feel? Well, that's how they fell. And you can see their response in verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. In both of these stories, they're the bad guys. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So if you ever wonder why on Sunday did people hail him as a king and Friday, five days later, they asked him to be crucified, it's because of some of these stories. And some of these things Jesus does during this last week before he's crucified. He's turning his sights on his own people. Now, if this all wasn't bad enough, Jesus is like, you ready for another story? I got another one. And he drops story number three. Jesus spoke to them again in a parable saying, the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so remember in Jesus' stories, different things represent Different heavenly things. So he's like, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Cool. So there's going to be a wedding story. We're all familiar with weddings. They were all familiar with weddings. So the king sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet. They've gotten the invitation, they've gotten the, you know, they've RSVP'd. And he's like, you know, come. But they did what? They refused to come. Then he sent more servants and said to them, "Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered, and everything's ready. the The meat is on the grill. It's medium rare. It's sizzling. Come to the wedding banquet." But they paid no attention, and they went off—one to his field, another to his business. The rest were even worse, though. They seized the servants, the ones who gave them the invitations. They mistreated them and killed them. You you, you ever heard of the show Bridezilla? Weddings that go really bad? I mean, this is a wedding that goes from a dream to a nightmare. I, I wouldn't want to be part of this wedding either. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murders and burned their city. I thought this was a wedding story. It was a little bit bloody. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Let me ask you, who's at the street corners? Prostitutes, people begging, the down and out. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Okay. Okay. Verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pause here for just a moment. Did the wedding get a little weird? You you got the king's invitations going out. You got a bunch of people that were invited who just decide we're not coming. You got new invitations, and and, and then not only do they reject the invitation, they kill the people that brought in the invitation. The king's so livid, he goes and kills them and destroys their city. All of this is prophetic, right? All of this is Jesus saying, you're going to kill me, and my king, God, is going to be so angry at you, he's going to kill you, and he's going to destroy your city. Now what happened three days after this? They killed him. What happened 37 years after this? The king of heaven destroyed the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem. He let the Romans destroy it. The the temple complex where Jesus is teaching on this day, guess what happens to this temple complex? It gets absolutely obliterated by the Romans. They want to make sure they never restore their worship. And and scripture records not even two stones were left standing on the other. 2,000 years later, to this day, you go to Temple Mount where this temple was, where Jesus did this teaching. And you know what's there? A mosque. No temple. Muslims own it. And so 2,000 years later, the Jewish people have still been unable to restore the sacrificial system and the glory of their former selves. And Jesus then says, the clincher, verse 14. This is where it, it gets really interesting. He says, for many are, what does your Bible say? Okay, many are invited, but few are Chosen. I love that word. Anyone, anyone else watching the TV series, The Chosen? Oh, it's good stuff. <laughs> got a fan. It's, it's good stuff. Interesting stuff that kind of explores potential backstories of the chosen, the people that Jesus called. Uh, it, it's fascinating. There's so much that we don't know. There's a lot of guesses about Jesus in her circle. But what we do know is that the chosen on this day are realizing, I'm not sure we're the chosen anymore. You see, the Jewish people for centuries had prided themselves on being God's favorites, God's chosen ones. God looked across the world at one time prior to this in history, and he found one guy that he decided, I'm going to build a people, a nation, through you. And that guy's name was Abraham. And God said, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world, I'm going to set you apart, you're going to be unique and different, you're going to be my chosen people abraham gave birth to isaac isaac jacob and so the jewish people came from that line and they were very proud of it they were god's chosen they were god's people and they were all waiting for messiah to come to give them the power that they always lacked you see the jewish people weren't chosen because they were the bravest or the best in fact they were the most stubborn and 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 smallest of nations god chose the weakest to display his strength But his own people had rejected him. And in a few days, they're going to ask for his crucifixion. They're going to demand his crucifixion. And so Jesus makes the statement, for many are invited, but few are chosen. And he tells the story that the guest list is going to be expanded. No longer is it going to be his his chosen that's invited. It's going to be those who were on the outskirts, those who were on the fringes, those who were formerly rejected, those who were non-Jewish. Now they're going to be invited in. Now, most of us here today have no Jewish blood running through our veins. And I'm really glad God opened the wedding banquet to me, to us. I'm really glad he did. This story, though, these series of stories was shocking to his people. Shocking to his people. It wasn't supposed to be this way. The chosen people of God weren't supposed to have the kingdom of of heaven and the the chosen label yanked away from them. If you want to study up on this and research it, I challenge you to write this down. Romans 9, 10, and 11. It is Paul, the Jewish apostle, who spent his life taking the good news to non-Jews, explaining why and how the gospel got torn away from the chosen people of God. Romans 9, 10, 11. If you study that, it will rock your world. It is the stunning story. And Jesus here breaks it with these three parables. Now, I think we've all kind of tracked with Jesus. We've all kind of understood it. But you know how I said there was a twist in the third story? Did you see the twist in that third story yet? I mean, there were, there were a few. But the big one is at the end when there's the wedding banquet. And there's, unlike the other two stories, you have a son who's good and a son who's bad. You have farmers who are good and farmers who are bad. You have two groups of people. But in the third story, there's how many groups? Well, let me break it down with you. There's three groups. There's those who had refused to come, those who came, two groups that came, one without wedding clothes and the other with wedding clothes. Now, this is where you get the question mark. This is where you get the what in the world is going on here. Let me ask you, how many of these groups were invited to the wedding banquet? All of them symbolic of who's now invited into heaven. Everyone. Many are invited. But the challenge is, out of these three groups that were invited to heaven, who was the chosen? It's certainly not those who refuse to come. They prove they're not truly chosen by their refusal to come. But it's also not this gentleman who's there without wedding clothes. The twist in the story is that there's only one of these three invited groups that's actually the chosen. And and it's got to make you ask a few questions about this. Now, wait a minute. I thought when Jesus gives an invitation to believe, to accept him, that anyone who responds to that invitation with a yes is in. Isn't that how it's supposed to work? And this becomes the tension and the challenge of Christianity is oftentimes many of us were trained or taught or heard that all you need to do to get into heaven is you need to say a prayer, right? Say a sinner's prayer. And if you say the sinner's prayer, boom, welcome to the family of God. But there's clearly something more going on here. And when you think about it, this makes sense because... You know, I got this wedding invitation a couple weeks ago from my cousin. She's getting married in D.C. this fall, so we're looking forward to attend her wedding. Wedding invitations are they're personal, they're unique, they're special. All of us have received a wedding invitation or a heavenly invitation to the eternal life of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, who in their right mind would reject an invitation to heaven? If you understand hell and you understand heaven, who would reject that? Anybody who truly understand, understands it would say, Yeah, I'll take a get out of hell free card. But Jesus here indicates no there's something more going on. It's not just about coming. What's it about? Now I know you probably don't want to say coming with the right clothes on, because that doesn't sound right. You know, as Jesus is Jesus saying you, you really should dress up when you come to church? Obviously not. You really should dress up when you go to heaven. (laughs) Some of you are going to sleep with your best outfits on just in case you die in your sleep, right? So (laughs) clearly it's not saying that. So here's what's not said, but what's assumed and what a Jewish audience would have got. Okay, this is kind of fun. What's assumed is that when the king went and sent his servants out to the street corners to invite people, the king didn't just provide an invitation. The king provided a wedding outfit to each and every person who's invited. That's what a king would have done when he invites the down and outers and the strangers and the outcasts to a wedding banquet for his son. He wants them to wear appropriate clothing, so he provides it for them, not assuming they have their own. So they're at the wedding, the king comes and he's mingling with these guests And and he sees this guy who's not in the clothing that he had provided. And he asks him, he just asked him honestly, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was what? Speechless. He had no response. And ringing in the Jewish ears the audience of Jesus' day would have been this prophecy from Isaiah. It says this, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. So here's the beauty of this. Jesus is saying, I'm now opening my kingdom to everyone. But when you come, you got to wear the clothes I give you because your clothes are not good enough. Are you are, are you getting the significance here? The problem isn't that the people in Jesus audience that day, the religious leaders and the Jewish people and the people in the temple, it's not that they it's not that they were not that they were good enough or not good enough. The problem is that they thought that they were good enough. They came to God, but they came on their own terms, like this guest who's been invited who shows up wearing his own stuff. And the problem is, my best behavior, my best attitudes, in God's sight, you know what it's worth? No, it's worse than nothing. It's as filthy rags. My best, the best I can give him is not just worthless, it's refuse. It's garbage. It's something he's got to dump. He's got to get rid of. And so Jesus just introduces this, this idea that it's never about being good enough It's about wearing new clothes that the king will provide you. Three days later, the Son of God, the perfect human, the perfect Messiah would die on a cross and in his dying breath would say, Father, forgive them. And his blood, his body would be offered as a substitute for broken, sinful people. And suddenly the gate to heaven is open and you can go in, not because of your goodness, but the goodness of the one who died on the cross that day. And you get to be clothed in the goodness of Jesus. My friend, you don't have to be good enough. You can't be good enough. And before you think, well, I'm glad he's talking to unbelievers. They need to hear this. This was talking to his people. This message is for his people, the religious people, the good people, the people that claim to be followers of Jesus. You've probably realized that around here at Berean, we don't talk a lot about saved. We don't use that terminology saved. Are you saved or unsaved? The reason we don't is because what was the terminology that Jesus used? He would say, follow me. And so what's the terminology we use? Jesus, Follower. Because he's not just calling people to say a prayer and I'm in. That's coming to him on your terms. He's calling us, he's calling people to follow him. And when we follow him, he gives us new clothing to put on. And we no longer follow him striving somehow to be worthy to be his follower. We now come to him clothed in the outfit that he provided. Listen, this is so real for me because the way that I understood Jesus in my younger years and in my high school years and in some of my college years is I understood it. I understood Jesus as, as someone I wanted to follow and I had a list of do's and don'ts that I had to keep to please him. And, and, and so my life was about striving Striving to be a a better person, a a more worthy person, a a more Christian person. And, And the more I strove, the further I was from the one I thought I was following. And there finally came a day for me, it was college. There finally came a day for me where I tripped over the stone and he broke me. I tripped over the one I thought I was following. But I was following morality, I was following religion, I was following Christianity, I was following goodness, I was doing all the right things. I was studying to be a pastor. But one day I tripped over Jesus. I was so busy doing my thing to follow him. One day I tripped over Jesus and he broke me on that day. And he changed my striving to joy. And he exchanged my religion for his robes of righteousness. And I realize I can never be good enough. I don't ever even need to try to be good enough. He is enough. He is enough. You can give Jesus a hand, that's okay. So listen, all that striving, and I think some of you might still be there. You, you might be there, and maybe you came out of, like I did, a legalistic background and and so life is, is, is tense, and every time you fail, it's just another, oh, you're in the vice of, oh, I displeased him again, and you, know, and you should mourn over your sin. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but following Jesus is a joyful walk of faith. And, and it says that, I'm overwhelmed with joy in the Lord, my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness, Listen, the, the religious people of Jesus' day who followed God were such a turn-off to the world because the arrogance of their goodness was not attractive to anybody else. They were pouring burdens and rules and regulations on everyone. And Jesus offered a different way. And my concern when I look at the church in America is, is I see that We've often, we've just lost our joy. We've lost the joy and the meaning, the significance of purpose of following Jesus. And the world sees us and often they just see us in this kind of pose. Or this. And imagine Jesus walking in here you're like, guys, the people out there are gonna get to heaven before you. And then we do this to Jesus. Jesus like, you don't understand. Like, Many are invited. Few are chosen. The only way you get into the banquet and stay in the banquet is if you come on God's terms. That means you wear the clothes of Jesus' righteousness and you, you stop trying to be good enough. You'll never be good enough. And I am so glad that I tripped over Jesus in college. I am so glad that he crushed me because I'm telling you, my my faith and my walk with Jesus now is so different than it used to be. It is a humbling, joyful walk with a God who loves me, with a God who's already paid the price, with a God that I want to please, but I realize I can never make him more pleased with me than he already is. He just loves and accepts me and wants me. Not because I brought something to the table. Not because he looked at my resume and thought, whoa, I want him on my team. I brought nothing. He brought everything. And I get to live and walk and wear the robes of Jesus Christ. My friends, the duty, the obligations of religion and morality and goodness, they all look good. They all seem good, especially to church people. But Jesus was never about goodness. He didn't come looking for the good. He came looking for the bad to give them his goodness. He didn't come looking for healthy people. He came looking for sick people and he offered them a cure. He didn't look for people who had it all together. He looked for people who were dying and he offered to be their great physician. My friends, Jesus Christ is messiah for all people and he offers his robes of righteousness to any who will come to him on his terms what an honor to be invited some of you wrestle with the idea of the chosen thing how do i know if i'm chosen listen if you have the faith to believe in jesus and come to him on his terms you're chosen you're chosen But if you refuse to come to the feast, obviously you can't be. And if you insist on coming on your own terms, then obviously you can't be. But if, if you accept the invitation to the wedding and you come on Jesus' terms, you are part of his new chosen and you get to wear his robes. What a freeing thought. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Today we're going to have the joy, the privilege of celebrating what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And we get to do that in in a sense of humble gratitude. Gratitude. Realizing that Jesus, boy, Jesus offered his body for us. He knew that we wouldn't have anything we could offer him that would be good enough. So the, son, the, the God of heaven offered his perfect son to be our goodness, our righteousness. So I just want to ask you today, have you heard the invitation to follow Jesus. Have you heard it? I don't want you to leave here or or turn off your computer, however you're hearing me today. I don't want you to leave without hearing that invitation clearly. God has invited you to his heavenly banquet. He wants you to come. And if you receive him and follow him on his terms, you don't earn your way to heaven, you prove that you're his chosen. You become a follower of Jesus. And so our invitation is not really our invitation. It's God's invitation. And I hope you hear him today. He wants you to join his family. You can't ever be good enough to earn or deserve that invitation. Just accept it. And and, and I want you to hear if, if you already have accepted the invitation, but maybe there's something in you that's still striving to be better, be more worthy I'd love to invite you to give up the religious rat race and to rest in the goodness of Jesus it is such a freeing way to live and it changes the way you see the world no longer through, through my eyes when I was living that way I saw the world in black and white and I was just condemning everything that wasn't the way I thought it should be. And I see the world so differently now. The sick, the broken, the hurting, I now see them as objects of God's love and mercy, people he's inviting in. And I'm no better than any one of them. I invite you to embrace simplicity of Jesus' message, that you don't have to clean yourself up you just put on the robes of jesus righteousness and you live in the joy of what god has already done for you father thank you for being so honest that last week of your life with your people they were stunned and angry by these stories But God, these stories showed the path of eternal life. Thank you for opening my heart to this truth. I pray, I pray that you will release the person here who's struggling with their own goodness. I pray that you will win over today more followers of Jesus who live in the joy of your goodness.